Today's part 35 of our Revelation series, and I entitled the message On the Way Home. And here's the deal. I should have titled it On the Way to Disneyland. And there's a reason, because every time I am going on a trip, this is how I want to travel. Now, some of you will appreciate this. The way I want to travel is if I'm going somewhere, let's just get in the car and go there. All right? I hate stopping. All right? So I've got all kinds of things to try to plan. Well, when you have kids, that doesn't work out so well. You're stopping all the time. But I remember as a kid trying to go down to Disneyland. We lived up in Northern California. All our family lived in Southern Cal. It took forever to get out of town. And my parents always had to stop somewhere and do something. And I was like, come on, my sights were already set. I was already at Disneyland in my heart. Can't we just get going? Why are we taking so long? That is how so many of us feel about going home to heaven. There seems to be so many detours. We've been studying this stuff all year long. We keep going, why are we stopping and doing this? Why are we doing It's important stuff. God had a lot of stuff to clean up our mess before we get to go home. And so I just want to spend time this morning doing three simple things. First, giving us a context for what we're about to read by studying the Garden of Eden. Secondly, reading our small six verses in Revelation. And then at the end of our time together, I'm going to throw up a timeline and bring us from the beginning all the way through in a few short minutes. You ready to do this? All right, then if you're going to begin with me, I need you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. It's the first book in the Bible that makes it easy. It's probably page 1 on your Bible, or in your Bible, I should say. Now, we're going to learn more about heaven today. Now, you're going to want to know all the details. That's not going to happen. So the fill in the blank in front of you is this on your sheet. We may not know the details, but we sure know where we're going. Now, I hope you understand that applies to you, whether you're going to heaven or not. I hope you know where you're going. You need to figure out where you're going because that's kind of a big deal. All right. So we may not know the details, but we sure know where we're going. Now, last time we met together, John had an angelic guide show him the heavenly city. He took him around, he measured it, and we found out it was a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. There were streets of gold, it was gem-laden walls, it was brilliant, it was, you could see through it, it was transparent, the glory of Jesus Christ illuminated the city. But now we're about to hit a different element, not just the street element, but a garden element of the city. The angel will take him inside the city and it looks much more garden-like than from the outside. But we're not going to understand why that's a big deal until we remember what God did first. God designed a beautiful place where we began and that was in the Garden of Eden. Would you read with me along in Genesis chapter 2 verse 8? It says, Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Let me just pause only one moment here. Please stop limiting God. Here's what I mean. When you pray, you always assume that... God only wants to give you what you need and doesn't care about the desires of your heart. I completely disagree. 
And here's why. Our God is a God of creativity and variety. And when it says that he created trees, to be practical, why not just create all the same tree? But he didn't. What did he do? He made a variety of trees. How many animal species are in this world? How many bug species are in this world? We have no way of knowing. As a matter of fact, we're still finding new animals now. After being on this planet for who knows how long. We're still finding stuff God made and hid so we could go find it later on and still go, wow, God's cool. That's what he's doing. And it was not just that he made different kinds of trees, but how does he describe them? They're beautiful. Why does God care about beauty? Beauty in all practicality is a waste. In God's world, there's creativity and beauty. In God's world, he cares about the details. And I just want you to know that when you pray, he cares a lot more about things that you don't think he cares about. He knows what's in your heart. Stop limiting him and saying that he only wants to give you bread and water just to survive. That is not the God that we serve. Let's keep going. It says, and in the middle of the garden, that's important, were two trees, the tree of life, which we don't know much about, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we know a lot about, unfortunately. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. All right, let's pause. You're probably familiar with two of those rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. Those are ones that usually will pop up in our memory somewhere. Do you understand? We know the general location of where the Garden of Eden was. So you bounce it back into the cradle of civilization. You pretty much have it around Ethiopia. Now, clearly things have changed. Right? So there used to be a garden there and it was beautiful. We know these rivers. This is not just some mystical, magical land. It was a location on our earth. All right, we move on. There was what kind? There was rivers, four rivers. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree. In the garden. All right, we always focus on the next phrase, so let's stop there. How many trees do they get to eat from? All of them. Then why do we keep saying God's holding out on us and limiting us? Let me, let me hit that for a moment. What's the next line? Because that's what we focus on. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is how God works with us, very practically. He says this. I have given you beautiful variety unending we can go out and have an adventure we can go have fun we can go have an exciting time all of it is yours what did they focus on the one thing they weren't supposed to do do you understand that god is freeing satan is limiting you go no 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 that's not true you see because christianity holds you back from all the fun stuff really Did God really forbid relationships? Did God forbid love? 
Did God forbid the things that matter in this world? Did God forbid play? Did God forbid joy? Did God forbid peace? As a matter of fact, God has instituted and commanded all the stuff that matters in life. All the great stuff. The only thing he limited was things that he attached. When you do this, you will die. That's pretty practical. Don't you agree? So he's limiting only for the sake of safety issues. So we think that in somehow God's holding out on us. No, God is expanding our world. We, in denying him, are limiting ourselves. We've got to break the allure of sin as if it is more interesting than what we can do. That is incorrect. It's far less interesting because it's always a shortcut or a wannabe version or a counterfeit version of something that matters. It's always the weakened version of what you really want. Yet we keep going towards it. Why? Oh, because that's the one thing he said we couldn't have. It's the rebellious spirit, right? That makes it more interesting. It's actually damaging. All right, we move on. Uh, let's jump to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Now, in between there, y'all remember the story? It didn't go well. Okay, so Eve goes moving around and a talking snake comes up to her, right? And it says, so God's holding out on you. That's clear. Because obviously he doesn't want you to eat this tree because then you're going to be like him and he doesn't like competition. That's clear, right? And he begins to mess with their heads. Well, sure enough, the woman, Eve, reasons it out. So she reasons it out by saying, well, it looks good. I bet you it tastes good. And clearly I can get some wisdom from it. God called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a snake just clarified for me what that means. Probably not wise. So she eats it. Gives some to her husband. He's all in. And they fall. God comes in. They realize they're naked. They start to separate from each other. God comes strolling through the garden. He said, what happened to you? They said, well, there's something wrong with the world. And he said, what'd you do? They said, well, we did the thing that you told us not to do. But it was really the woman's fault. Then the woman's like, yeah, but it was really the snake's fault. And everyone starts passing the buck, right? It's totally normal human nature. So God curses the serpent first. Then he curses the woman. How and in what way did God curse the woman? Do you remember? Childbirth pain and what? relationships there's a relationship problem that immediately developed you want to talk about war of the sexes it started there right it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule like a tyrant over you it's immediately a problem we immediately have a clash between these two and we have all types of disruption in relationships why did god curse that because the deepest core need of a woman is security and she finds that primarily in relationships so the relationships were attacked where does man find his deepest need? His deepest need is significance. So where does he find that most often? At work. Where did God curse him? In his workplace. God immediately curses the ground and says, you're going to be frustrated your whole life. Nothing that you do in your job is ever going to satisfy. And you're going to sweat over it and sweat over it and sweat over it. And guess what you're going to feel like? I'm going nowhere. Your life will be miserable because you said no to me. We don't do that. I told you not to eat of the tree. I was very clear. And they were banished from the garden. Let's read that account. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. 
pause. How do you get a garment of skin off an animal? He's not just going to unzip it and give it to you. Right? Someone sins, someone dies. That's how it works. So the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life. Why not? And eat, and he will live forever. Now, whether or not that would have healed some of the issues, perhaps, but more likely or not, it would have perpetuated the problem. They would have ate the tree of life and lived forever in this sinful state. That is not something God was content with. So God immediately broke through the plan of redemption. And they could not take of the tree of life because that would make them live forever. So it says, so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. All right. So let us get our context. So God made it perfect. God made a beautiful location that had to do with trees especially the tree of life. It had to do with rivers and running water. It had to do with beauty and diversity. They were able to eat of every tree in the garden. There was an abundance to them. As a matter of fact, all the land where they were was also a place where there were found gems and gold. I hope you realize all those elements are about to come back into play. Everything got ruined because of the curse. Everything got ruined because man said no to God. And we've been in trouble ever since. Well, God is fixing all of that. Sometimes it gets messy, but he's fixing it. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 22? Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Let's read what we have today and then we'll pray for the word and, and finish up. Revelation chapter 22, 1 through 6. Last book in the Bible. Sorry in case you were looking for that. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Oh, look, there's a whole bunch more of them bearing what 12 crops of fruit. That's abundance yielding its fruit every month. That's consistency. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any what curse. It's a complete reversal of what the problem was. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. They were kicked out of the garden so they wouldn't be able to see his face. Last time we walked with God unhindered was in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't until we had Jesus come in the form of a man that we got a chance to even walk with God. The intense presence of God we cannot see. God said in Exodus 33, no man shall see me lest he die. Man has always been banished from God, but not anymore. That's where we're headed. It says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or of the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for allowing us to walk through history, walk through all of mankind. 
and see what you're doing. That, Lord, you have shown us from beginning to beginning what you are doing. Lord, you have revealed it to us, just a bunch of little kids in big people bodies. And, Lord, we praise you, we worship you, and we submit to your authority. Please guide us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's tear apart these six verses and then see what it looks like big picture. John said, then the angel showed me. It's the same angel that took him on the city tour. He showed me the river of the water of life. Does that sound like a familiar phrase? Yeah, we are used to hearing it saying living water. What gospel would you imagine that you will find that phrase? Gospel of John. Why John wrote this one, John wrote that one. That's one of the common themes that carry through the both. Where you would go, who's the author of this book? Oh, that's right, the same guy that talked about this before. And Jesus said, I'm the living water. All that you thirst for in your life, that flows from me. All your identity, all your uh, capacity for life, all is drawn from me. I'm your water. I'm your living water. Well, now, flowing from his throne is a whole river of living water, right? This is where the kids' songs come from. I've got a river of life, right? It's the same concept, all flowing out. And what do we learn? He said, he showed me the river of the water of life, and it's what? Is it murky? No, it's clear as crystal. There's no impurities. In absolute pure sinlessness, perfection, that righteousness that God pours through your life, just like we sang in the worship this morning. That's what this represents. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. They're the origin of it all. Down the middle of the great street of the city. Now, this is written weird in Greek. So, the whole middle of the street thing can either be the trees in the middle or the river in the middle. So, we, we kind of got to pick one. So, obviously, the NIV picked that the river is flowing through the middle of the street. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, it's meaning the tree of life, meaning we know that one, but it is now multiplied out. There's enough tree of life for everyone. And it says, bearing 12 crops of fruit. What do we know about the number 12? That is number of complete perfection. So there is more than enough. It's bearing fruit Every month, that's 12 times more than normally it would bear. It's an abundance. It's an overpouring. It's an extreme grace, extreme mercy, extreme healing. That's the point. Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now you're going to go, well, why do I need a healing tree if there's no problem? If there's no pain. Why do I need healing? This is a sign to say even all the tree the trees around him. Even everything that fills that place is a reminder that there's no pain. There's no want. There's no need and desire of something that is terribly lacking. Even the presence of the tree talks about how the nations have been healed. All right. So it says, and no longer will there be any curse. That's what we've been waiting for, for all of existence. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. Now, in what way will we serve God? Well, we'll carry out the task that He gives us to do. What is that? I don't know. But, you know why it's there, at least in my opinion. 
A lot of people think that when they become perfected or glorified, then they're equal to God. Whoa. No, that's not biblical. You will never be God. You will always serve God. There's only one uncreated being and that ain't you, right? You are a created being, so you will become amazing, but you will never be God. We will serve God and they will see his face. That is a huge deal. It's interesting because Jesus said only the pure in heart will see God. So by the time you get there, guess what you're going to be? Pure in heart. That's what Jesus and the Holy Spirit do. It says, and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That's about character. His character will be embedded in your character and you will look like Jesus in character. There will be no more night. Remember, biblically, night meant sorrow and death. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun for the Lord God will give them light. By the way, what does light do for us? I mean, three things that are simple is it illuminates, it guides, and it sustains us, right? We need the sun. God does those things. And they will reign forever and ever. Now, that was a big debate I threw out a number of weeks past. Uh, what, who are we going to reign? What are we going to reign? I think the most logical response is that we're going to reign like Adam and Eve were told to reign. Which was what? He gave two people, remember I told you last week, a, a rather enormous challenge. Hey, go out and reign the earth. And they're like, what? Really? Us? Yep. Let's do this. We can do this. Let's go. How have we been doing on taking care of the world? Pretty lousy. All right. We've treated this place like garbage. We're not very good at it. You know what? We're going to learn and we're going to be better at it. I'll tell you that. So we're going to go out and reign over all of God's creation. Then the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, let there be no doubt. Okay, you guys, this, got, this stuff is going to happen. The angels just going, I'm being honest with you. God just gave it to me. I brought it to you. This is it. These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, meaning the master, the God of the spirits of prophets, of the prophets, meaning he's been telling us this all along, has sent his angel, me, the angel said, to show his servants like you, John, and all you believers who are listening, the things that must soon take place. Now, next week, our whole message on is on what does it mean soon? When is Jesus coming back? Why do they keep saying it's soon when it's 2,000 years later? What is soon to God? And how is this whole thing going to pan out? Well, this is what we have in front of us. Now, for many of you, you've been begging me along the way, can we please just have a timeline up front? All right? So we're going to go ahead and do that. Can you throw the timeline up here? Let's see if we can't walk through history and dive into the future here for a moment in short. All right? So I brought my handy-dandy laser pointer to be able to diagram in front of you. Let's begin with Adam. All right. Now, obviously, we have this amazing ability. Whenever I point on this side, my hands start shaking. Look at this. Okay. On this side, we have Adam. And Adam is in a perfect, perfect environment, engaging with God face to face. Everything's awesome. Everything's abundant. Everything's amazing. He's got things to do and adventures to have. Everything's wonderful. And we ruin everything. God now has to clean up all that garbage, 
set into plan the redemption plan, which was always the plan. Jesus is going to sweep in and fix it. Well, along the way, it gets a little bit messy. So let's dive in. In Abraham, that's the main guy where all the Jews came from. God takes this guy out and he says, all right, as a part of my plan going throughout history, I need you to start a people group that will be my core people. What I need you to do is I need your people to be salt and light of the world. I need you to basically run around the world and tell them what I'm like. If anybody wants to know what God is like, I need you to come go hang out with the Jewish people. They'll tell you what I'm like. I will communicate through you guys to the world. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do the whole plan of redemption through you guys. I'm going to send the Messiah through you guys. So Abraham, big deal. Now he reaffirmed in another famous guy named David. He said, I will put the Messiah on this throne. I will heal your land. As a matter of fact, to you, the Jewish people, I will restore your land. I will restore your nation and I will make you once again a beautiful place where I reign physically. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So we got to figure out how he's going to work that one out. All right. Well, then all of a sudden along the way, after a number of years, about 2000 years or so, Jesus shows up. Here comes a Jew, says, I'm God, I'm here to redeem mankind. Some people thought that was accurate and most people did not. And they killed him. The son of God was murdered and the Jewish people as a whole rejected him. And God said, you did what? You rejected me. I'm your only hope for salvation and you shut me down. Really? This is not going to go well for you. You know what? I'm putting you on hold. Boom. And he hit the pause button on the Jewish people. And he said, forget you. I'm going to go run around and hang out with all those non-Jews. And he opened up the family to allow the Gentiles in. Now, all of a sudden, because before that, the only way you got to go hang out with God was to become a Jewish convert. You had to become a full Jew. Now, all of a sudden, he said, you know what? I'm going to use you guys, the ones that all the Jews hate, right? Because all the Jews are like, just let the Gentiles burn. Come on. Now God goes, I'm going to use all those that you hate and they're going to embarrass you. I'm going to work through them. I'm going to do miracles through them. I'm going to do everything that I did through you just to embarrass you. You know what? You shut me down. I'm shutting you down. And now I'm going to use them as salt and light in the world. We have now been in the church age for 2000 years. This is all as a purpose to reach the world, which was always the plan through Abraham, but to reach the world primarily not through the Jewish people. Why? Because they killed their Messiah and he said, you don't get it yet. Now, God is not done with Israel. God's love for Israel is intense. But right now he's teaching them a lesson. He put them on hold. Now, all this mess, this is about getting back to the Jews. All right, because God is not done with them. So here we go right here. See this little hash mark, this little thing right here. This is option one. Remember, I'm a big option guy. This is option one for when Jesus will rapture the church. Okay, that's called a pre-tribulation rapture. What that means is mysteriously, at any moment, Jesus Christ will turn on the vacuum and suck up all the believers. We're all just going to, out of nowhere, it's going to disappear. There's going to be people hanging out together. All the believers are going to disappear. And the church, meaning all Messianic Jews, because they're part of the church, all Messianic Jews... And all believing Gentiles, which are Christians, will be taken up to be with Christ. Zoop! Right out of there. Now, 
Is that how it's going to go? I'll tell you the most powerful argument, in my opinion, for why that is a good possibility. Right? Here's why. I think he wants to get us out of the way. I think he's done with the church at that moment in terms of saying, you know what? I got to get back to the Jewish thing and you guys are in the way. All right. I'm going to unpause the Israelites. And so church, I'm done with you. Get out of the way. Come here. Come hang out with me. Grabs us all up and gets us out of the way so we can deal with Israel. Everything in here is about the Jews, in my opinion. All right. So we got first a first possibility. Zoop. We all get sucked up there. All right. Now. This starts a seven-year-long tribulation period, the majority of what we just read in Revelation. We've been studying this all year long. And we're like, oh, it's terrible. It's destruction and disease and murder and woe and war. Do you understand that in the grand scheme of things, it's seven years? It's a pretty short amount of time. We always think that everything's bad, everything's murderous, everything's dark. Oh, my gosh, terrible persecution. Well, yeah, because we think it's going to happen in our lifetime. That's why we're all freaked out about it. But in probability, it's only seven years. The first years are when the Antichrist is rising up and he's causing world domination. So, yeah, there's going to be war. And, yeah, God's going to show that the earth's reacting off of it. There's earthquakes. There's famine. There's all kinds of problems as God's going, hey, everybody, wake up. Something bad is happening. The Antichrist rises to power. And then halfway through... He turns ugly and turns on Israel. Now, that hash mark right there is your second option. Is Jesus coming back then? Let's say he doesn't come back at the beginning, but he lets you see the Antichrist rise up. Nothing bad has happened yet to the church. So he's allowing you to see his plan unfold. Then right in the middle before God starts his wrath, then he vacuums up the Christians. Right? Is that what it happens? That's called a mid-trib view. So he sucks us all up right here because we have nothing to do with the wrath of God. There's no wrath for us. So get us out of the way so we can start working with the Jews again. Is that when it's going to happen? All right. We move on. These last three and a half years are when all the nasty stuff happens. The first three and a half years is when we talked about the seals being opened. Remember? And the four horsemen riding out. That's all the first three and a half. The second three and a half are the trumpets and the bowls. All that, the sores broke out on the Antichrist kingdom. His kingdom was plunged into darkness. This is God ripping the enemy apart. That's the ugly part. Intense persecution. Right here in the middle is when he starts the 666 mark. You remember all that? That's when everything starts getting ugly. And then Jesus shows up. Why? Because the Antichrist and his little buddy, the false prophet, go to destroy the Jews. Remember, you don't destroy Jews without getting God mad, right? So Jesus shows up as the rider on the white horse comes flying down out of heaven. Now, this is your third option. Is this when the church goes, whoop, gets caught up with him to go, yeah, and run down and attack? Did you guys see my little, yeah? Okay, fantastic. It's important you get down these sound effects. Is that when we're going to be caught up with Jesus to ride in with him? Or will he come and rescue us at that time and then take us to be with him so we can begin to deal with the Jews? Possible. Possible. He throws the false prophet and the Antichrist into the lake of fire, binds Satan for how long? A thousand years. For what purpose? Jesus stays on earth, sets up shop in Jerusalem physically, personally, and rules the world with an iron fist. 
meaning he imposes righteousness. This is a huge time of blessing for those that are on his side. Remember, only believers are walking into this, but that's a long time. It says that people will live really long. They will have children. They will die. There will be a whole long existence. People will have many kids. The world will begin to explode again in population. And all those kids grew up and they never got saved. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. And now the whole world starts getting a little irritated with this Jesus guy who's ruling in Israel, where Israel's a big nation. Everybody has to go to Israel to worship. There's memorial sacrifices there. If everybody wants to honor Jesus, they got to go to that place. Everybody gets real irritated with a mandated, what? Morality. So at the end of a thousand years, there's a bunch of people ticked off at Jesus. Who gets released? Satan to go out into the earth and get everybody riled up. And he goes, you want to kill that guy, huh? You want to go shut this place down? You sick of the Jews? Let's go attack them. Releases everything. They come in a huge war to go and devastate the city of Jerusalem. That, by the way, in this kingdom, the animal kingdom is completely revamped. That's the lion laying down with the lamb. It says that a water flowing out of Jerusalem, a river will flow out down into the Dead Sea. Anybody know anything about the Dead Sea in the Middle East? And it will become alive again. Fish will swim in it. And it will become vibrant and alive. The whole land will be blessed. The Jews will have all their promises fulfilled. But you know what? No matter how perfect it is, you still have to love Jesus Christ in your heart. Oh, and that's a final example. You've never been able to save yourself. It's always been grace and mercy. Even if the Jews get everything they want, they still need to love him in their hearts. So what happens? Satan is loosed. Final battle. Fire comes down from heaven. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And there's a huge judgment. The great white throne judgment. God sifts all the believers from the unbelievers. The unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire. The heavens and earth are destroyed. New heavens and earth are created. And we launch into eternity. Now. That's how it's going to go. That's what it's all about. It's about everything was great. We ruined it. God fixed it. Everything's great. Now you know what the Bible's about, right? That's the whole thing. Now, when you look at all this and as we close up, you go, so what do I, what is that supposed to mean to me? It's supposed to mean you love God more. It's supposed to mean that you love your neighbor more. You're like, I don't get it. What do you mean you don't get it? All this is God, love, 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 mercy, 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 grace, 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 grace. He's constantly loving us. He's constantly pouring out on us. He's constantly cleaning up our trash. No matter how wicked we've become, no matter how many things we do, while we were the ungodly, Christ died for us to love us. This whole thing is a love poem. Everything about it is God wooing man. Everything about it is what he will do and what lengths he will go to rescue those that are his own. And if God has loved you in that fashion, how are you to love one another? That's what the Bible's about. It's going, come on, why are you being so rude to one another? Why do we pick apart and destroy each other? We're supposed to be loving one another. We got enough enemies attacking us. We got enough problems. It shouldn't be each other. We are here to help defend. We are here to be the salt and light of the world. 
We're here to display to the whole world that God loves them and is willing that none shall perish, but everyone come to eternal life. Do you get it? Do you see it? Because I think that's what it's all about. The whole Bible hangs on those two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's what it's always been about. And always will be. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. That Lord, we would have this opportunity to walk into the future with you. Seeing it from a past point of view. And that God, somehow, some way, you rescue us. Every time you sweep in and take us off our feet. Lord, may our lives reflect your glory. May we make you look good. That when Satan and his demons look down upon us and look at us, Lord, they will be amazed and astounded at what Jesus and an ordinary wicked human being can do. And that we are your walking trophy case. That when they see us, they see redemption. Lord, may we show the world what you're like. In Jesus' name, amen.